0: We praise you, we worship you, and we magnify your name. And we ask, Almighty God, that you would indeed grant us grace at this moment. You would help us to understand your word, that you would open up our eyes and enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we might truly understand that your Son is indeed risen from the grave. In his precious name we ask this. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus is an historical fact, and because the resurrection of Jesus is an historical fact, we must believe in him. It really is just that simple. If we entrust our eternal destinies to him, then we will be saved from the penalty of our sins. If we do not, however, entrust our eternal destinies to him, God will demand that we pay the penalty. For our sins. I ask you a rhetorical question. Which to you seems like the wiser choice? Clearly placing your faith in the one who has defeated death. Is the wiser choice. And if you haven't believed in Jesus yet today. I encourage you. Today is the day that you actually can be saved. You can cross from death to life. He can be granted the assurance that Christ has opened paradise. He can be granted the assurance that he has overcome the grave, sin, and death. And if you are a Christian today, and you've been a Christian for so many years, you can't begin to count them. Today is a day of blessed assurance that Christ is who he says he was and is and always will be. Now, Christian faith isn't easy. We live in a fallen world filled with fallen people, ourselves included, and many of them are skeptics and cynics and hard-hearted and loath to believe. And they accuse us, sometimes they accuse us of using faith in Christ as a crutch to escape reality, to escape the harsh realities of life when in fact, it's rather the opposite. Faith actually allows us to accept reality. And I think we can see that Christians accept reality in at least three ways. First, Christians accept reality by acknowledging God's existence. Do you realize how crazy atheism really is? To assert that the universe has always existed is truly beyond my comprehension. And I've asked many a person who posits that view, can you please explain to me where the first rock came from? <laughs> yes, it's difficult to believe in a self-existent eternal God, no doubt. But which one makes more logical sense? That the rock was always there, and even if the rock was always there, how on earth did a rock ever in its wildest dreams, even though it doesn't have any dreams, somehow develop into the universe, into an antelope. How can that which isn't create that which is? It's, it's illogical. Christian faith does make sense. It is based upon historical facts, and it does cohere internally. People can attack it from the outside, but from within, It's internally consistent. And that's extremely important for any system of belief. If it's not internally consistent, then there's no reason to believe it because it just falls apart on its own. What is God? God is the Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And this God works all things, and I do mean all things, after the counsel of his will. No matter how crazy this world gets, no matter how confused our own lives may seem, everything is falling out exactly as he plans, no matter how scary or painful that may be. I assure you the alternative is even more scary. Imagine if God wasn't in control of every aspect of the universe. If you think life is terrifying now, and it can be, bad things happen to us. We do bad things. And that's all under the aegis of God's control. Imagine if he for one minute were to lift his sovereign hand from the world. How crazy would it be? If you can imagine rush hour in Pittsburgh or Manhattan or San Francisco, or Chicago, or Paris, and there's no traffic lights, then you can see chaos. And that's just the beginning of the glimpse. Imagine if God didn't restrain evil and he gave men and women over to the deepest depths of darkness within them. How scary would that be? That would truly be a nightmare. But he does work all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, some may find this reality unpleasant, but sadly, much of reality is unpleasant. There's nothing good, there's nothing pleasant about cancer or emphysema or heart disease, or diabetes, juvenile diabetes. There's nothing good about those things. They're unnatural. They're a result of God's judgment upon sin. Not necessarily our personal sin, but sin is a general category. There's nothing good about them. Now when a believer dies after a long illness, there is a certain level of comfort that we receive knowing that that Believer is out of pain and out of suffering. But what's the basis of our comfort? Is it some sentimental thing? No, it's not. The basis of our comfort is Christ's resurrection. When I speak with older folks who are, or even younger folks, but really older folks who are really suffering, I point in the 1 Corinthians 15 and say, this is what you've got to grab hold. I don't know when the pain will end, but a day will come when it will end. And a day will come when your body will rise from the grave into a state of perfection that you can't imagine because you've never felt it before. And I can't describe it to you because I've never seen it. No sin. No disease. No defects. Nothing. Nothing to cloud your moral vision. Nothing to impede your body. That's what the resurrection is all about. And that is what we must hold on to. That is reality. We also acknowledge our, accept reality by acknowledging our sin. What does Romans 3 tell us? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. There is no category of justice that exists above God that he has to subsume himself to. God makes the rules whether we like it or not. You see, when someone says, well, that's unjust of God to do this or that, that's that's not dealing with reality. A Christian says, no, God decides what is right and what is wrong, That is an acceptance of reality. See, the non-Christian really is escaping from reality with all of their man-made systems. We, as Bible-believing Christians, understand reality. We acknowledge it, and we also acknowledge reality and accept reality by acknowledging the intervention of Jesus Christ. By acknowledging that we're sinners. By acknowledging that we are in desperate need of a Savior. When somebody needs help, and they don't ask for it. What are the reasons for that usually? It's really only two. If not three, maybe. Embarrassment, which is understandable. Stubborn with stubbornness, which is understandable, but not very realistic. And pride. I mean, if you're in trouble, why not ask for help? It's silly not to. All of us we need desperate help when it comes to our sin in God. Because God can't deal with sin. It's not allowed in his presence. You need to go between a mediator. And Christ is that only mediator. Have you trusted in this mediator? Have you placed your internal destiny on the finished work of Christ? That he was born of a woman, born under the law, lived a perfect sinless life was brutally executed, unjustly, but ultimately the execution was at his father's hands, and that he tasted death and hell for you, and rose victoriously on the third day, and is now ascended into heaven, waiting for his enemies to meet his footstool. Do you believe in those historical facts? Do you believe in him? Or, the only alternative is, you're hoping that on that great and final day, you will have been good enough to pass the test. Well, if any of us were ever capable of actually being good enough to pass the test, i ask you this simple question. What on earth was Good Friday all about? If any of us, if any one single person can work themselves to heaven, that means we all have the capability because we're all the same. We look a little different, but we're all made of the same stuff. We need a mediator. That's an acceptance of reality. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Well, I think we've established that realistically Christians do accept reality, but what about the resurrection? Can we establish that? Yes, we can. Let me just set the stage here for you. Pretend you're in court. I'm going to give you an argument for the resurrection. Jesus is dead. As we would say, dead is a doornail. He's been buried. And everyone knows that. He, they know that. The disciples are scattered. They've Run. They've hidden. They're afraid. How do we know that they don't believe? At this moment, they don't believe that Jesus is going to rise. He's told them a few times, but they never got it. How do we know from their reactions? Listen, if they truly believed before the fact that he was going to rise, where would they be? Hmm. They'd be waiting at the tomb. I would. Maybe I'd be hiding behind some trees to make sure the Romans don't see me. But I'd be waiting to see him come from the tomb. Guess what? They're not there. They're hiding. Judas is dead. Thomas, we know from another account, has zero faith. Peter, he's pretty disgraced after those three betrayals. That's 25% of the disciples. They're scattered and they're afraid. The only thing that's on their mind is survival. If they've killed the master, what are they going to do to me next? If they've got him, then I'm certainly not safe. They don't have any faith. They don't have any faith. Their actions prove it. They believe after the fact. They were just trying to survive. But the next day, after the crucifixion and burial, the Jewish leaders are extremely nervous. This is interesting. Matthew 27, previous to the gospel reading. Listen carefully. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver, that imposter, said, After three days I will rise, Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead, so that the last deception will be made worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. This shows us how dangerous Jesus was to these tiny minded hypocrites. They've killed them. They're still scared. They're still scared. We can almost see God, the Father, on his throne, laughing at them. Watching him scurry around the Pilate, who was an ineffectual Roman ruler. The Romans didn't even like Pontius Pilate. Why do you think he was in Jerusalem? Maybe some of you have been in the military. To be a Roman prefect and to be sent to Jerusalem was like being... a a, a Navy admiral, and being sent to the South Pole. You've messed up so many times, we'll just send you to the farthest corner of the earth because Jerusalem is a place where riots happen, where the Jews are always fighting City Hall. They fight everybody, so have fun down there, Pilate. Have fun. But they're nervous. It also shows how evil and sinful they were, and it shows us the power of sin, and it shows us how sin deceives us. Listen carefully. If they hadn't sealed and guarded the tomb, if they hadn't done that, they would have a ready-made explanation for the missing body. It would have made more sense to them not to do this because then when Jesus actually rose, they could say, well, there was nobody there. His people came, took away the stone, and, and, and took away his body. You see... God's playing with them almost. He's allowing them to do all this conniving so that their position, they think their position is going to be strengthened when in reality, they're playing right into his hands. They had the perfect opportunity to have an alibi, so to speak. They're giving away their alibi. And we also have to realize that these are Jewish guards. A lot of people think they're Roman guards. They're not. We'll see why for a minute. But Pilate says, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. And then they went and made the tomb secure. Pilate knew that Jesus was dead. That's all he cared about. Okay? It was just another political execution. The Jews were off his back for a while, and he could have a good night's sleep. Basically, he said, he's not my problem anymore. I've done my job. He's dead. You take care of it. The Jewish authorities sealed this tomb. From Pilate's point... He'd done his duty. Let's continue to progress to the next day. On the resurrection morning, some very interesting things occurred when we read about them from Matthew twenty eight. After the Sabbath, the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. You might have read that many times, heard it read on Easter Sunday many times, and not noticed a few important details. Jesus is gone before the angel descends and rolls away the stone. The angel rolls away the stone. There's no body there. He's already gone. Jesus' resurrected body is transformed into a different type of body. It's fully human, but he's able to do things that we can't do. In John, he seems to be able to appear through walls. It's a great mystery here, but there is no mystery when we realize the power of God in his resurrection. Jesus didn't roll away the stone. Quite frankly, the only logical explanation is, in his resurrected body, he just walked through the wall. The angel rolls away the tomb. The guards are there. It's still sealed. They're still on guard. The women are coming, and the women don't believe he's alive because they're carrying spices to anoint him. They're coming to pay respects. When you go and visit a loved one in the cemetery... You don't really expect to see them, do you? You certainly don't expect to hear their voice. You're going to pay your respects. That's all that they were doing. These women were heartbroken. And they were going there just to pay their respects. But they get this big surprise. This proves that the disciples didn't steal the body because the stone is still there and the disciples aren't here. These women have more courage than the disciples. The disciples are still hiding out. They've run away like rabbits from wolves. They're gone. They've absconded the scene. And the guards weren't expecting the resurrection either. They fainted. They passed out. Now let's give them a little slack. They've been up all night, maybe taking watches. You don't see an angel every day. And these events, there's an earthquake. Let's give them some slack. I'd faint too. They pass out, they faint. And the angel sitting on the stone is a very symbolic action. It proves Jesus has conquered sin, death, in the grave. You can almost see the angel just sitting there smiling. It's over. We've won. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Imagine being the guard, re- guards realizing, oh, I bet on the wrong horse. I'm really in a world of trouble. But we'll see in just a little bit. That wasn't even enough. Sin can have that much power on a person's mind. These are important facts because they really only point to this conclusion that Jesus' resurrection is an historical fact. And because his resurrection is an historical fact, we must believe in him. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. Go read some ancient myths. This doesn't mean like a myth as literature. It doesn't fall into that category. It just doesn't. Now, as the narrative continues, we see sin and deceit at work. Matthew 28, 11 through 15. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, "'Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept.'" And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews today. You know, it still is, even to this day. A very famous book was written, maybe 30, 40 years ago, called the Passover Plot, basically giving us the supposition that the disciples stole the body, which is just brutally illogical. Again, this proves that the Jewish guards, listen, Roman guards... Roman guards don't go and report to Jewish priests. They just don't. They just don't. For one thing, they'd be terribly, terribly scared if they were Roman guards. If you were a Roman guard and you were negligent in your duty, the Romans were precise. They were precise. And there were plenty of people who wanted to be a Roman guard. If they had failed in this duty, I can almost guarantee you, they themselves would have been executed. But they were Roman citizens, they would have been basically guillotined a much quicker, less painful death than being crucified. If somebody falls asleep on the job, a soldier, maybe you've been in service, a soldier falls asleep on a real important guard duty, what happens? Big trouble. These are Jewish guards. They go to the priests. Now you would think that if they had reported an angel came, roll the weight of stone, and the body's gone. You would think that that would be a moment where they'd say, you know what? I want nothing to do with you. I'm with them now. But money and sin and deceit can harden our hearts. These chaps saw the empty tomb, and for money, they disbelieved. That should give us pause when we think about Sin. The book of Hebrews warns us don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Are you deceived by sin? Every one of us is. When you sin, you've been deceived because you're saying what God says is not right, what I say is right, and that's a deception. Even if it's a little thing like stealing a cookie from a candy jar. Well, stealing a cookie from a cookie jar. We deceive ourselves. And we think that if we go our own way, we will be satisfied. We do, and at the end of the day, we realize God was right. I should have done what he said. It's not a smart thing to steal. I got caught. Now I'm going to jail for five years. I'm not really smart to embezzle. They the computers found me out. It's not a smart thing to cheat my business partners because. Now the business is gone. It's not a good thing to cheat on my spouse because now my life is gone and my kids don't want anything to do with me. It's not a good thing to worship a false god because now I'm standing before Christ on his judgment seat and he wants nothing to do with me. Sin deceives us. Don't let it deceive you any longer. Furthermore, the priest's Post-resurrection actions prove the resurrection. Let me ask you this. Why didn't they pursue the matter? This is their chance. They have their chance now to literally nail Christ to the cross once again. Why didn't they pursue the matter? They easily could have brought the guards to Pilate. They had no problem going to Pilate before, did they? They went to Pilate to crucify Jesus. They went to Pilate to get approval to seal the tomb. Why not bring the soldiers to Pilate and say they fell asleep? What should we do with them? They stole the body. And then if the, if the soldiers gave Pilate the story that actually happened, what do you think Pilate would do with that story? Okay, an angel came down, rolled away the stone and sat on it, and there's no more body. I don't think so. Pilate's not going to believe that. Why didn't they persecute the guards? This was their chance. Why not pursue and persecute the disciples? They have a chance now to accuse them of a crime. Grave robbing is a crime. Okay? They have a chance now to pursue and persecute the disciples. They don't. This was their chance. They could have gone to Pilate and played their most powerful card. The card that they played when they betrayed Jesus. Pilate was ready to let him go, remember? What did they say? If you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar's. That got Pilate's attention. In other words, if you don't do what we want, if you don't crucify this fellow, we're going to get on the phone and call Rome, and you'll be in a world of trouble, Pison. They could have gone to Pilate, and played that card. If you don't pursue this matter, if you don't discredit this man once and for all, you're no friend of Caesar's and we'll tell on you. They don't do that. They don't do it. Why not? We have to ask ourselves a question. The only plausible answer is that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I'm not saying that they believed, I'm just saying that their crazy actions prove it. Now be careful to these words. The priests say, tell them. His disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. When the priests tell the guards, tell them, who are they referring to? Their fellow Jews. The Romans wouldn't ask. The Romans don't care. Romans don't care about some crucified Jewish rabbi. This is talking about their fellow Jews. Now imagine these scenarios. You're one of the guards. That would have been a, a plum assignment. People would have known. And now people are going to come up, someone comes up and asks you, hey, what, what happened to the body? And I fell asleep and they stole it. What would the reaction be? Oh, some guard you are. Nice, good job. Way to go. Took one for the team. Good job. They come to another person. Hey, what happened to the body? I was asleep and his disciples came and stole it. Now, this second person is a little smarter and says, "Now wait a minute. Let me get this straight. All of you fell asleep. And these Galilean fishermen, who everybody who was terribly afraid, they came and somehow unsealed the tomb, rolled away this gigantic boulder and then stole the body and you didn't hear it. Boy, give me some of that NyQuil. I'd love to have that be that sound of a sleeper. another person might say I don't think so I don't think so the only logical explanation is that he did rise from the dead where's the body it's gone the angel rolled away the stone it's true it happened do you believe that do you believe that I hope so, because the Jewish leaders had all the opportunities they had to discredit Jesus finally, and they didn't do it. We see the hand of God here, manipulating the political rulers of the Jewish nation. They're scurrying around doing everything they think they can to win, and in reality, they're playing right into the hands. And when Jesus actually appears to the disciples, these scared Galileans are suddenly transformed where they're not afraid of anything. They're not afraid of Romans. They're not afraid of the Sanhedrin. And they literally changed the world. Within three centuries, the gospel had won. And the gospel was penetrating all the corners of Europe, Not through political action committees, but just by the simple preaching of the gospel, prayer, and the ministry of the sacraments. That's it. That's all. So do you believe? I pray that you do. Because if you don't, an awful thing awaits you. But if you do believe, a glorious thing awaits you. Heaven, the new earth, a resurrected body. The impossibility of sinning. Can you imagine it being impossible to sin? That you won't even know what sin is. That the word disease will be erased from your hard drive irrevocably. That's what awaits the Christian. And if you're a Christian today, hold on to that. If you're not, I beg of you, grab hold of it for the first time. If you do, you will not be disappointed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Lord, we ask you would help us to continue to believe on the Lord Jesus so that we might then be saved. Amen.